Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Today's Old Testament reading is from Psalm 119, verses 9 to 32. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And our New Testament reading is from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 16. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. 
For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Pastor Craig. If I haven't got to meet you yet, welcome. I find myself when I'm watching a movie or a, a TV show, and there's those extra cuts at the end that you get to learn about the actor, you get to hear about their life, and hear about who they're married to or who their kids are. I find myself really uninterested in those parts. Do you agree? No. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe I'm um, just heartless. Uh, it might be part of that. But I think part of it is I want to imagine them as the person they just depicted. And, and if, if you've heard the term method acting, Maybe I'm just imagining that everyone is a method actor, but the method actor is someone who just becomes so consumed with the character that they are portraying, it's almost like they are trying to actually feel and become that character. So it's, so I don't know anything about acting besides that, never been in any drama, so something like that. And I feel like if I'm gonna talk to Daniel Day-Lewis, who's a famous method actor, I want to ask him, what does it feel like to portray Abraham Lincoln agonizing over these decisions? I don't care what his house looks like or how he dealt with COVID or how his kids are doing. Um, because I feel like that is their thing. That is their thing. They have chosen to get out of their own way, if you will, to portray, in this case, Lincoln or whoever it would be. So, what is your thing? What is the thing that people come to you to talk about? To know that you are the expert or you care about this or that thing? Because God's thing was what he calls his word. And we're going to learn something about what that means. And we're also told in this passage that for the Apostle Paul, his thing was very much the word of God and how it would work in the lives of those he is ministering to. So let's pray and we'll jump into our passage. God, you are... The Father Almighty, you are good and holy, and we thank you that we can come on this day and praise you and hear from you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would, according to the promise that Jesus gave us, that your spirit would use your word to make it effectual, to comfort us, comfort those who are brokenhearted and anxious and worried. And I pray that you would challenge and convict those who are hard-hearted and not eager to hear from you. Lord, you know us better than 
we know ourselves. So I pray that you would be mighty in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start off in looking at this passage in 1 Thessalonians and trying to understand what Paul means by the Word of God. Because if you noticed, it seems like the Word of God is a lot more than just what it sounds like to us, a word, a message, something we can tell people. It does things. And that is very, very consistent with all of Scripture. So when we see the Word of God written, I want us to realize that what is actually meant by that is that is God's thing. That is his action, his essence, his, what he does and says. It is much, much more than just a message, some information, and we can see that throughout Scripture. I had us read Psalm 119 to that effect. Psalm 119 is uh, the acrostic of all acrostics, and it is a meditation on the Word of God. And so just to point out a few things that were, you can even see in that passage that was read there, the Word of God seems to be synonymous with God himself. And there are amazing things that happen according to this psalm, that we are, when we store up in our hearts his commandments and his testimonies and his laws, then that will do something to us. That will enlarge our hearts. That will change our hearts. When we meditate upon, there's all sorts of synonyms in that passage for the word, the testimonies, the laws, the commandments words. When we meditate on those things, then the Spirit will do something. Will make us more and more like Him. So He can say, open my eyes, Lord, to you. Or He can say, open my eyes to your word. Incline my heart to your testimonies, which should seem a little strange, maybe. But it's because he can say, give me life according to your word, because that is what God is about. His word, what he says, what he does, his reputation, his glory, his commandments. Isaiah 55 is maybe the most famous uh, passage, which was read a couple weeks ago. But in case you don't remember, uh, talking about the forgiveness of God. And the grace of God and the thoughts of God are not our thoughts. And then he says, My word, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I purpose. Which should sound strange to us, because that's just not how we use the word word. But in both, case, both cases, whether it's the Hebrew or the Greek, it's really a lot more than just word. It's essence, principle, even being. In the New Testament, the most obvious place to go is John 1, where he says something so bold as to say, in the beginning, quoting Genesis 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So that's all to say that the word of God is a lot more than what it sounds like to us. 
It's God himself acting and speaking in the world. It is the power. We talked about power a lot in our passage in Thessalonians. The power at work within you is the word of God at work within you. He says earlier, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, meaning not just as a letter, not just as something to read or information to learn, but as something with power and it is synonymous with the gospel. Because when God speaks, what does he say? He says Jesus. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, we are told. The radiance of his glory when God shines, he shines Jesus. When he speaks, he says the gospel, the good news, that he has come to save even sinners and his enemies. And so that word is what is at work in our passage. It's at work throughout scripture, and it will be at work no matter what. So it's also something that is pretty unusual in our life, especially in our modern world. Something that is at work no matter what. It's objective. It's outside of us. There are still some things in our life like that. The weather in New England, we have no control. It's going to do what it does. Death and taxes, kids getting older, we're getting older, but not very many things like that. But if this is true, if the word of God is God himself and he's going to be at work no matter what, we should want to know how do we know it's at work in us. I want this. Whether you call it the word of God or not, we all want this. We want the word of God to be at work. So how do we know? Well, the first point I want us to see in our passage in Thessalonians is the way that Paul is sure is that he has gotten out of the way. So if you want to know how is the word of God at work in you, I think the first step is to see, have you gotten out of the way? Are you no longer self-absorbed? Do you have a new burden, a new life? A new focus. In Romans 1, we read that the wrath of God is being poured out on those who are unrighteous because though they have the truth, they suppress it as if they are pointing down. And so it's the opposite of what an image or a mirror should do, which should point up. So instead of suppressing the truth and holding it down and reflecting whatever we happen to be looking at, we are called to be pointing and imaging up to reflect like a mirror God. Our focus is no longer on ourselves, but on God. And to such a degree that we would be willing to say, nothing should get in the way of that, not even my own self. We do not want to get in the way of the word of God. Because as we will see, that is where judgment falls. So if the word of God is at work in you, you have become so transfixed by it, transfigured by it, it becomes the most passionate 
part of your life, then it's not unlike, I think, method actors. If someone comes to me and wants to talk about, I don't know, what it's like growing up in Indiana or cycling or being tall or something, that can be a conversation we can have. But it's not really the most interesting thing I want to talk to you about. It's not really my thing. I'm not consumed by it, or I'm not so identified by those things, at least hopefully not. You're missing the point. I think if we become more consumed by the Word of God, it becomes our thing. People will realize that. People will want to know more about that and not something else. The amazing thing that happens when you uh, love God and seek to get out of the way so that others may know God, you become more and more in love with others. There, is a, there should be at least a proportionate response. The more you love God, the more you should love your neighbor. This is a simple way to put it. Your love for God and your compassion for others should grow at the same time. Now, why is that? Well, we see it in our passage, verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Calvin says he did not spare himself in order to spare them. He didn't want to get anything in the way because he has become so united in his affections to Christ, he doesn't want to let anything get in the way of somebody knowing Jesus. So it seems like he didn't even claim what seemed to be his right. He didn't want to ask them for anything. Thomas Akempis says, he's a, an old spiritual mystic, 14th century, 15th, 14th. He says, love to be unknown. Love to be unknown. There's this intense desire that I think ought to bottle up that as we grow in the word of God, we want others to grow, but it can't be about us. Which is a little like parenting. You want your child to learn all sorts of things, know God, and you want them to trust you. But if it becomes about you, it's a little twisted. If, if a nursing mother, he, Paul compares himself to a nursing mother in the passage beforehand. If a nursing mother is nursing their child and is like, you are going to owe me one day to the little baby, something's wrong. I know we all parents have crazy thoughts, so we have simple thoughts, yes. But if it really becomes that twisted, something is wrong. You want the child to be focused on God and the other. It's interesting that he compares himself to a nursing mother, and then he also compares himself to a father, as to his own children, as he encouraged and exhorted and charged them. This reminded me of uh, a good question that kids often ask the really good questions. Mine certainly do. Sometimes they stump 
the Sunday school teachers and the teachers just say, just ask your dad. Thanks, guys. One really good question, especially from a, a younger kid, is do you love God more than me? Now, partly the obvious answer should be yes. God is way more worthy of my love. He, he created me, has given me everything I have. He has saved me, given me new life. Of course. So yes, that's part of the answer. But to some, especially young kids who are just not developmentally aware or able to hear that, another possible response is they don't compete. The more that I love God, the more that I should love you. They don't compete. It's a little bit like, do you like apples more than the sky? They're not on the same, it's not the same sort of thing. Our love for God should not compete with our love for others. If it does, you are probably becoming more and more self-righteous. More and more consumed about being better than others. Look how close I am to God. Why can't everyone else just do this? And that's simply not Christian. It's not a zero-sum game, if you will. Love is not a zero-sum game. Love is one of those few things. And I'm trying to get us to, to this sense that Paul is trying to explain. Love is one of those few things in life that the more that we experience it, it, it produces more of itself. It's a positive return. It's not a zero-sum game. We don't have a limit on it. And so if you're getting out of your own way, if you find yourself hopefully more in love with God, you are becoming more compassionate to others. To the point that, as Paul says, we are willing to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. To share our own selves. Which, as I was sitting on this passage this week, it's a little bit oxymoronic because we're trying to get out of our way so that we can point to Christ because we're always pointing away from ourselves. But if we are so focused on Christ, I think what he's trying to say is, I'm willing to give you anything. If you want to consider Jesus, I'm not going to put any burden on you. I'm not going to put anything in your way. Nothing to compel or nothing to repel except for Christ. Is one of those sayings in our church. Paul says a pretty similar thing in 2 Timothy. He says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The word of God, remember, is not bound. It's going to be at work no matter what. It is not bound by the circumstances that Paul is in. And so he's going to continue to try and do whatever he can to share Christ. 
Now, I have to say, let me take a little bit of an aside. I have to say, in God's providence, uh, the, the letter that Preston Graham set out to our congregation about him stepping down as senior pastor quoted this passage. Maybe some of you noticed that. That was not our intention. You may not believe me, but it really wasn't. He's not tracking where I was going to preach the next Sunday. Um, but it's a pretty amazing, I thought, that the week that he announces this, and you're, if you're clueless, then don't worry about it. There's hard copies in the back if you want to hear some of the transitions that are going on. The amazing thing is that this passage ought to embolden us to see what is it like to be a pastor and what is the calling to receive a pastor. Part of what it's like is I need to be getting out of my way. So if I am getting in the way of Christ, you need to tell me. If you, don't, if you can't even imagine me saying these words, verses 8, 9, and the rest, you need to tell me, because this is the calling of the pastor. And then by extension, the calling of a Christian, that we may share our own lives on our way to God's kingdom and glory. So, how do we know that the Word of God is at work? We are getting out of our way. We are growing in love. And then he says something that should really shock us. Walk in a manner that is worthy of God? Does that shock us? Walk in a manner worthy of God. That is his goal. Maybe it doesn't shock us because we think, of course, I'm worthy. Haven't you seen how great I am? Who am I not worthy to be in the presence of? I can go to anywhere I want. I can vote for anyone I want, of course, come on. That is not the case with God. So to say that we can actually become worthy of God should give us First fear, and then incredible, incredible confidence and dignity. That in Christ, though you were an enemy, you not only have been brought near once and for all, justification, you are going to start acting in sanctification more and more like you are living in the presence of God, which you are now worthy of. That should shock us. He says it. This is not a unique phrase. He says it also in Philippians 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Man, what a calling. He goes on in Philippians 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. It's a very similar passage here. 
to Thessalonians. He says, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So we have a similar theme. What does it mean to become more and more worthy of God? It means you are growing in the church. Communally, you are striving for the gospel together, more and more united, more and more knit together in love. And it's done in suffering. It's not a surprise, not a unique theme. It's all over the place. It's right there in Philippians 1, and it's in our passage as well. Did you catch it in our passage? He says it earlier also in 1 Thessalonians about how they have received the word in much affliction. And here, we thank God constantly for uh, for this, that when you received the word which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you, for you became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from countrymen, from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Let me say, by the way, you may have heard verses 14 and 15, and in a post-Holocaust world, those verses are terrifying. I think all of what he is saying is you are suffering the same way that other churches have suffered, the same way that Jesus suffered. In Jesus' case, there was a a Jewish Judaizing group in that time. In the churches in Judea, there there was a group, the Judaizers, a certain group of Jews or Jewish leaders that persecuted them, and he's saying, you're suffering from your own countrymen in the same way. Please, please, please do not take this into some wild blaming the Jews for killing Jesus and and doing whatever else we blame the Jews for. It has nothing to do with this passage. Paul himself, we know, several years later, writes the book of Romans and says, I am willing to be accursed for the sake of my countrymen. His love for Israel, not just this certain group of Jews who happened to do this thing in the past, but his love for Israel is unmatched. He desires that Israel be saved and says that they will be saved. God always keeps a remnant in Israel. So it has nothing to do with this sort of anti-Semitic Stuff that has obviously and tragically happened throughout history. Don't get distracted by that in this passage. It has to do with the suffering that they're going through, that Jesus went through, that somehow the sin is becoming more and more ripe. There's this sense in Scripture that God is waiting for judgment on certain types of people. It's mentioned in Genesis 15, Matthew 23. Jesus says it even. So that since the word of God is not bound, not even suffering is going to uproot us. Not not even suffering is going to hinder the word of God. So if we get out of our own way and we become more and more worthy of God, the word takes root. Despite persecution, 
despite suffering, despite the circumstances that you may be undergoing. We ought to become less and less brittle, less and less fragile as the word takes root. Suffering should not surprise us. All sorts of circumstances should not surprise us. And it's as if, I like to personify suffering and say, if suffering comes to us and says something, can't you just reply, you are a liar? That is not true. Just because I'm suffering doesn't mean God is against me or that the gospel is losing or Christ hasn't been raised. It doesn't have the power to say those things. When the word of God takes root, we can say that more and more, God willing. And so I think we have this beautiful, challenging picture of what it means for the word of God to be at work. To be at work within us individually, to be at work in our church and in the churches around the city and world. And so really I think we just need to ask ourselves, is this our thing? Are we willing to get out of the way, to see this happen more and more in our own lives and those around us. And if not, why not? What is, it that, what is it that people come to you wondering about? And are they things that get distraction, become distractions in your life and in their life? What is it that you still become self-absorbed about? you still become so defensive about or fragile about that you are not willing to let the word take root. That we may experience this power, this thing that we are told is God's thing. This is what he wants to do among us. And we are called to receive it, to yearn for it, to pray for more and more of this in our heart. Let's pray. God, you are holy and good, and we struggle so much with not being those things. We want to share our own lives with each other, and then, again, we often don't. Root your word in us, Lord. Let us say the words of the psalmist. Let us say the words of Paul, that we can say we want to share our own selves. We want to share the gospel that you may be glorified. We need your power and your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.